Would you turn, please, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This has been a precious time tonight, hasn't it? It's wonderful. I appreciate this water, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you so much. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for every person present and for the impact of these great songs and the bells and everything that has gone into this hour to cause us to love you more and to survey the wondrous cross and to die to self and to hear the call of the Holy Spirit. Now speak to our hearts through the Word, through the time when we come together to observe the Supper of the Lord, through a self-examination in preparation for revival. Holy Spirit, do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Paul wrote this. He was one of the apostles. He is sometimes called the 13th apostle. He was not present when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And you'll notice how he begins this narrative. We read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the basic narrative of the Lord's Supper, the institution of that supper just at the end of the Passover and before Calvary. But Paul, writing it later, tells how he got it. And beginning in verse 23, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, and notice that's an adverb. It is not an adjective. It describes how we observe it, not whether we're worthy or not. There's not one person that's ever worthy of Jesus. And we've heard people say, well, I can't take the Lord's Supper because I'm not worthy. Brother, you'll never be worthy. This is an adverb that describes how we take it. And it says, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, <clears throat> shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto judgment, and the rest will I set in order when I come. 
The focus of this brief message tonight is verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The focus in this passage is on how we observe the Lord's Supper and how we discern the body of the Lord. Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Third day he was raised from the dead. He is a living Savior, and he lives in heaven to make intercession for the saved. Jesus is not a dead Jew buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. He's alive, and he's here with us tonight. And he's in the heart of every believer. We've worshiped him. We've adored him. We've sung to him. We've prayed to him. We've given to him. We're now hearing from him. In a few moments, we will remember the Lord's death until he come. We'll look back to Calvary. We'll look forward to the glorious coming of Jesus. And in light of this, the scripture says that we're to examine ourselves. Let every man examine himself. And I cannot think of a better prelude to revival than for a man to sit down and take stock of his own life. Some hold that the regular activities of the church will take care of the spiritual needs of the members. But just look at our lives. Look at the messed up problems that we have. <clears throat> Others fear that setting a high standard for church members will frighten away some prospects. It probably will. After the death of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, the superficial dared not join the church. The Bible says that many were afraid because they saw Ananias die. They saw Sapphira die because they lied to the Holy Spirit. But after that passed, the Bible tells us that multitudes believed and were added to the church, and there was great revival because there was some pruning. Revival is the renewal of the first love of Christians. It is the moving of the Spirit of God in our hearts to show us ourselves, resulting in the conversion of sinners to God. Because when we get right with God, there's going to be a new love in our lives, a new tenderness, a new compassion, a new care, a new concern, a new godliness, a new realization of how terrible our sins are, and a new repentance on our part, and a new desire toward God. And when that happens, we make people hungry and thirsty for the gospel. We become indeed the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Charles Finney said, revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. A revival breaks the power of the world and sin over Christians. Vance Havner has said, the present religious world is marked by three movements. <clears throat> Number one, a wave of religious interest. Back to religion campaigns. Churches have go to church day. As if every Sunday wasn't a go-to-church Sunday, we have a certain Sunday. We say, now this is our church and we're going to have a go-to-church Sunday. A wave of religious interest. Number two, a wave of mass evangelism. We have a lot of crusades going on across the country, and I'm not against these. I'm for them. I thank God for every crusade of evangelism. But the true church revival is where the church hatches and mothers her own chicks. 
And I believe that's real revival. When a local church gets on fire for God and our people get souls on our hearts and we go out into the highways and hedges and find somebody and bring that person and that person gets saved and we begin to care for them and love them and they become part of our fellowship and they grow in the Lord. Thirdly, a wave of church activity. Church membership, church building, church attendance, church workers all-time high, but our morals are at no all-time low. The ideal is to have the local church the center of evangelism. The Welsh revival was an awakening within the churches that spread from church to church. And I believe this passage holds the key to revival in the believer's heart because revival means self-examination on the part of Christians. I think in at least five or six areas. Paul said, let every man examine himself. And I'd like to ask us to do that tonight. Sort of take stock of our own lives, first of all, in regard to our prayer life. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And yet we say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. And that's about our prayer. Or we're like the guy that wrote his prayer out, pinned it up on the wall. And just before he got in bed, he said, Lord, there's my sentiments. He jumped in bed and went to sleep. That's about the extent of our prayer life. I couldn't ask today how many of us spend three minutes a day praying or five minutes a day or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour. I don't want to do that, but I wish we'd take stock in our own lives. How much do we pray? How much do we really pray? Elijah, when he prayed, he prayed. And he prayed and it didn't rain for three days, three years. He prayed again and started raining. Do we have power with God? Do we have power with men in our prayer life? There is a place where thou canst touch the eyes of blinded men to instant perfect sight. There is a place where thou canst say arise to dying captives bound in chains of night. There is a place where thou canst reach the store of hoarded gold and free it for the Lord. There is a place upon some distant shore where thou canst send the worker or the word there is a place where heaven's resistless power, responsive, moves to thine insistent plea. There is a place, a silent trusting hour, where God himself descends and fights for thee. Where is that place? O oh, soul, it is the secret place of prayer. How much do we pray? Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. If ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ye have not because ye ask not, James said. And sometimes we ask and we ask amiss that we might consume it on our own lusts. <clears throat> pray. How much do we pray? Secondly, how much are we separated from the world? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And what I say in this area is the most unpopular thing that I ever preach from this pulpit. 
And I've heard more ramifications from this than anything else in all the years that I've been here, separated living. My friend, God says that God's people are to be salt and light in a world that is dark and perverse. And we can't touch this world if we're going to be like the world. If we do the same things the world does, we follow its customs and follow its fashions, and we're just like the world, if there's no difference, then we're not going to have any impact. Revival comes when we examine our hearts in regard to our separation from the things of the world. This does not mean we separate from the people of the world. God doesn't want us to go up in ivory towers and live like hermits and be away from the people. He wants us to go into the factories. He wants us to go into our schools, into our classrooms, into our businesses, wherever we are, and let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven so that when they cuss, we don't cuss. When they talk dirty, we don't laugh at their dirty jokes. When they drink their booze, we don't follow in their customs. There's a difference. There's a separation from the world. And I want to ask you tonight, as we examine our own hearts, how separated from the world are we? Thirdly, <clears throat> let us examine our own hearts in regard to Jesus, the command of Scripture, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. The command is just as surely to be filled with the Holy Spirit as it is to not drink. Now most of us in this room, maybe not all of us, but most of us recognize that the Scripture injunction is that we not get drunk. And that we not drink. I think any drink is too much. I think one little gram, I think one little old social drink is way, way, way too much for a believing Christian that cares about souls and cares about God's people. And it's my prayer that God would lay that same burden upon your heart. I know a man doesn't go to hell just because he takes a little drink. But sometimes you may cause another to stumble into hell over you because of your habit. But my friend, <clears throat> just, as in, in, just as important upon our lives is the injunction, not only don't drink, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Man goes out and gets drunk, and we say, well, he's grieved the Holy Spirit. A man has jealousy in his heart. What do we say about that? Somebody hurts your feelings and you get offended and you hold a grudge. What do we say about that? Well, nobody knows that. But that grieves the Holy Spirit just as much. You cannot say that a man that gets drunk or a man that commits adultery or a man that's overtaken in weaknesses grieves the Holy Spirit of God more than the man who has resentment or jealousy or ill will or grudges in his heart. God says that's sin. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And those things that grieve the Holy Spirit spoken of in that verse are spiritual sins, not sins of the flesh. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed in the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking, 
be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. As we take stock in our lives, do we find areas where there needs to be change? How about the confession of our sins? We go through this world at breakneck speed. Most of us, the faster we go, the behinder we get. The busier our schedules, the less we meet our schedules. How many of you had enough time this past week to do everything on your schedule to get done? Not many of us. We're always behind schedule. We're always behind. <clears throat> and many times we use this as an excuse to fail to confess our sins. My friend, God cannot bless his church if we don't confess with the intent of forsaking. And when we do confess our sins with the intent to forsake, then we need to leave them at the cross and not pick that burden up and carry it on with us, but leave it there. Leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Don't pick it up at the cross and carry it with you. If you've been overtaken in some fault, if you've been overtaken in some sin, if some habit has clutched itself upon you, something from the past has come invading into your life and overwhelmed you, you do not have to live under those circumstances. Take it quickly to the cross. Make a beeline for Jesus and put it all before him and say, here it is, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. I can't do it myself. I can't help myself. I leave it with you. And God says he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we take the supper of the Lord tonight, let's take stock in our own lives. And last of all, have you been to Jesus? Are you sure you've been to Jesus? You may be a church member. You may be a, have been baptized. You may be going to church all the time. You may sing all those wonderful songs. But the question is, is your heart right with God? Do you know for certain, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit into God's family? Are you sure? If you have, thank Him. Thank Him. If you haven't, come to Him tonight. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for this time to study the Word of God and to examine our own hearts and to look deeply into the soul. We pray that thy Spirit will disturb us if there are areas where we need change. May we wait before thee until there is a change. And may we be willing to forsake anything that's in the way and say, Lord, I want to be in your way, following you, serving you, whatever it takes. I want to die to myself and be alive to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? And Jim, I want to sing again tonight that same song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. It won't hurt us to sing it twice the same night. But that sums up what I think we ought to say. I heard the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Now that's the theme of every Christian if you're saved. If there's something in your life that needs to be changed, I want to ask you to change it while we sing this song. You may be able to change it right where you stand. As you sing, make that a prayer to Jesus. It may mean that you need to walk down this aisle and take a new stand for God and rededicating your life to God, serving Jesus, saying, Lord, I've been away from you a long time. I need to come back. I need a personal revival. I need to get going for God. Here's my life. I give it to you again. Would you do that? Some of you here tonight need to come and confess Jesus as your Savior and say from your heart, I want to be saved. I want to follow the Lord in baptism. I want to take a stand for God. You do it. There are others that ought to move your membership here. You do what God tells you to do. But every believer, let me press upon you the claims of Christ. Examine your heart. And if there's something you need to take a stand for, for God tonight, do it. I didn't mention soul winning. I didn't mention tithing. I didn't mention loyalty. I didn't mention faithfulness. I could have gone on and on and on for another hour. But I believe I said enough. The Holy Spirit can apply the rest. Do what God's Spirit tells you to do. While we wait, while we sing, is there anybody that ought to come? We're not going to sing a long time. Quickly, will you come for Jesus' sake? <clears throat>